0: Happy New Year, everybody. We got a special episode today. Our returning guest is Rick Reeder, BlackRock's CIO of Global Fixed Income and the head of their global allocation team. Today's episode, Rick shares his take on the macroeconomic landscape as we kick off a new year. He touches on the setup for both stocks and bonds and why he's focused on finding companies that have, quote, rivers of cash flow. We talk about several other topics, including crypto, AI, Japan, the recent shift by the Fed, U.S. debt levels, and much more. As we wind down, Rick touches on his entrance into the ETF space this year with two fun launches. Welcome to the party. If you want to listen to Rick's first appearance on the podcast last fall, check out the link in the show notes or scroll back to episode number 446. This episode is sponsored by our friends at YCharts. A typical day in the life of a financial advisor calls for back-to-back client meetings, juggling portfolio management, and the consistent desire to improve client relationships. YCharts report and proposal tools could be the missing piece to help you effectively handle these time-consuming tasks. Now more than ever, clients want to hear from their advisors and with user-friendly templates at your disposal, generating impactful client reports can be easily integrated into your everyday routine Click the link in the show notes to learn what others are saying about YCharts' comprehensive suite of reporting and proposal generation tools. Get 20% off your initial YCharts professional subscription when you start your free YCharts trial. Click the link in the show notes or tell them Meb sent you for new customers only. Please enjoy this episode with Rick Reeder. Rick, welcome back to the show.
1: Thanks, Rob. Thanks for having me on. Appreciate it.
0: We had so much fun last time. You were hanging out with an ETF guy and lo and behold, welcome
1: to the party. (laughs) Thanks. I mean, you know, it's a party that seems to be uh, getting more and more well attended. So we're, uh, you know, the number of people that are in the space, excited about the space, the number of models that that drive around ETFs. I mean, we... You know, I think de facto you got to be in the space will continue to grow. I mean, you know, mutual funds are still a really, really good avenue. More and more people want to be in this uh, in the CTF space.
0: Well, great. I want to touch on those later and the strategies within them. But we last spoke about a year ago. Listeners, you can uh, find the show note link to the episode. It was a lot of fun. The world felt a little different. It was kind of a nasty year for markets last year. This year has been a bit different as they always are. Give us a little high level thoughts. What's the macro environment now? I think the Rick word cloud last year would have been polyurethane. I don't know what your word cloud this year is, but give us an overview of what you're thinking about.
1: I think the resilience of the U.S. economy, that was why we use that polyurethane thing. It's the, the resilience of the U.S. economy is incredible. Like everybody's like, we're going in a recession, going to recession. I still don't think we're going in a recession, although I think we're slowing. But I think people underestimate the extraordinary resilience the U.S. has technology, service economy, et cetera. I've used this uh, this metaphor of the diving board. Like you can't make a big splash until the diving board's really high. And we just went through, in 150 years, we haven't seen interest rates back up this much and and create a negative, to we've had higher interest rates, but you've never seen the total return of, so for example, the 10-year treasury exhibit this sort of loss this quickly. And so I always say that you can't generate real returns or make a big splash until you lift the diving board higher and higher. And then, you know, you think about after, financial crisis after periods of real down you know downturns that's when returns are better and today I think you got we're moving more to a normal economy next year our projection feds projection pretty close to this you know one and a half percent real GDP, two and a half percent inflation pretty stable life never goes the straight line to stability but my sense is if that's right, you're still getting to buy fixed income yields at levels that are incredible like you can lock in six, six and a half go out a little bit on the curve, you don't have to go that far out, meaning you can generate real return, particularly in fixed income. And you've seen like the last month and a half, like all of a sudden, like pretty spectacular equity-like returns. And, and, you know, my sense is you won't continue to see spectacular equity-like returns, but the ability to build income for what is, you know, after equities had such a terrific run, to augment what you want in equities is well, that's a pretty phenomenal thing. And my sense is a year from now, people will say, gosh, remember, we could buy this stuff at like six, six and a half without taking a lot of risk.
0: Well, you know, it's funny you mentioned that. Like if you were to say the theme this year, in my mind, outside of my world, I feel like the T-bills and chill, this resurgence of having yields for fixed income investors, particularly the everyday sort, like you see in money markets, just that number in their head, 5% feels like a very behaviorally significant number. Now, as you mentioned, a lot of these long bonds, I mean, I think the drawdown on the 30-year was darn near half, right? And I feel like if stocks did that, everyone would be losing their mind, going crazy. But bond investors are a little more sober, I think. I don't know. But this seemed like an event that felt very rare in markets. Why do you think investors in general, and maybe they didn't, tell me kind of your experience Handled it so well. Is it kind of they, they saw the yield side of it versus you know the the significant losses on these long bonds.
1: So it depends who you talk to. I mean, three straight years pre November ish, three straight years are pretty devastating. Like you said, the long bond thirty-year Treasury. The the uh, the it was the, the May 30 twenty thirty-year Treasury is trading at forty-seven and a half dollar price. People don't look at that. Argentina has debt that trades. So, you know, people don't view U.S. Treasuries. Like AAA asset, best asset in the world, safest asset in the world, I should say, trading 47, that would be pretty remarkable. So it depends who you were in terms of the reaction function to that. But like you say, there has been this sucking sound of people saying, I don't want to own any of this stuff. Get me into bills. And the amount of money sitting in money market, 7000000000000 trillion-ish, depending on how you measure it, sitting in money market funds, get me five, five and a half going into bills, and like I'll sleep at night tax-sufficient. The thing that I think is part of your beginning question that I think, and, and you know, I think every time I did a meet probably on your show as well, you know, people said, what's your favorite investment? I'd say one-year commercial paper for, I don't know, how many months? One-year commercial paper. You know, you can get six at one point, six and a half almost. Now, like I think Fed, the Fed's cutting rates, like, you know, whether they're going to start March or May, right, you know, June, I, you know, it's hard to, I think they'll start May, but it's not. So what happens like five and a half is a fleeting number if they really are going to cut rates aggressively. So my argument as you go out, you don't have to go that far out the yield curve. You don't have to go to 30 years and take the, the volatility around it, particularly 30 years at 4%. Like not interesting at 4% unless you're a life insurance company or has to own it? But you can go out to the three year five year part of the curve, buy a lot of things like investor credit, credit, agency mortgages, a little bit of high yield. European high yield, you can, and you can build, still build a little bit of a six and maybe the six because of if rates rally, the six can turn into a nine or 10 from a total return perspective. So at some point you got to jump off that diving board, but wow. wow. I'm doing it personally. I'm doing my funds. Like I think it's worth locking some of this in.
0: So we were doing some fun stats and these aren't particularly actionable insights, but for me, it's more sentiment related where I was talking on Twitter and I said, you know, as far as like the long pond, Really, and it doesn't look like it's going to happen now after this ferocious rally over the last month or so. But I said the only time sequentially it had been down three years in a row, and this is nominal, not real, but was late seventies, early eighties, and obviously the future returns were great. After that, marking a, a slightly different, you know, level of interest rates, but a phenomenal returns since then. And I think we're going to print a positive year now. At least it looks like it. We still got a, a week, week or two to
1: go. Do you know that? Because the rates were high back then and because for long discussion about the duration, because when you have rates super low and then that's your starting point, even with rates being, you know, that, that period, this was worse from a total return perspective because you were getting no coupon and where rates are starting from. So your price return was horrendous. So like the, as bad as it wasn't the, you know, we're double digit interest rates from a return perspective, this was even worse.
0: You said things have been strong in the economy, which they have. And I feel like that's been a bit of an outside's voice this past year. I think the big topic that we, I imagine we were talking about last year, really everyone was talking about, was this concept of inflation, which got really scary for American investors that have the PTSD of decades past. And then it seems to be mellowing out. Do you see this as something that is mostly behind us at
1: this point? so i think inflation is coming down and, and i think it'll keep coming down listen we went through a war that created an incredible dynamic around food prices energy prices on the backside of of a pandemic that it created logistics real challenges around supply chain and so if you go into next year we think by january you're going to see core pce in the twos and they know by by the end of the year, I think two and a half. There are a couple of things that are the governor and maybe some stickiness to inflation. One is wages are still high. Service level inflation tends to pivot off of that. Two, there is truth around infrastructure spend, the infrastructure climate oriented spend, re- near shoring, reshoring. So there's some stickiness to it. That being said, people say inflation is going to be high for years or artificial intelligence. We're going to go through a productivity enhancement. People say, gosh, here's where we're going to be a year, two years hence. I mean ai i just read a read a study that showed the amount of impact on ai a few months ago it could be incredible like the number of augmented you know um business functions etc so I don't anyway my, my sense along the way is saying i think inflation is coming down i think that supply chain shock is largely done you know save some other major event and um so i think we're gonna get to more normalized but we project Inflation is coming out of two and a half. You know, we ran for 20 years at under two, one and a half to two. So there's some stickiness in there. But by the way, the Fed can live with two and a half and, um, and so on. I'm pretty outspoken about.
0: Good. Well, all right. So we're getting a presence in our stocking, not coal. Let's talk a little bit about market outlook 2024. So we turn the page on 2023. Do you have any um, favorite areas, sectors, geographies? What type of investments look particularly interesting?
1: So, I mean, the first thing I would say is you know, discuss like build a six and a half, and uh, you know, lock it in for three to five years. And the, so my my favorite is in a fixed income. You now, some of these investment great credit agency mortgages, securitized assets, like build the six and a half, but like build that thing. You know, you can still own high yield. We're not going to have a default cycle. And by the way, use Europe, the U.S. As if you're a dollar investor, you know, I'm mean, going to get too technical. But if you, because of the, you know, it's called a cross-currency base, because of, as a dollar investor, you get a benefit from investing European assets. You build things like European high yields, you get 10%. Investment grade in Europe, you get six and a half. Now, by the way, we used to finance European investor grade at negative yield. Think about that. For In 2021, 88% of the front end of the year was negative yield. So, so those assets I love. Just put them away. And then, you know, then I think the equity market is going to do its thing. Like we had spectacular returns driven by seven stocks. But I think next year, I think for the next couple of years, I said, oh, gosh, I'm going to buy 60, 40. I'm going to take 60. I'm going to hold my equities. There are a lot of sectors within equities that the multiples are okay. Energy, healthcare, defense. And they trade at 14, 15 multiple. And and it were less and free cash flow multiples that are really, really low. So the level of nominal GDP is still pretty darn high. So companies can generate 10% return on equity. So on average, boy, you, you throw off 10% return on equity, the multiple's not not stifling. Like, I don't know. Like, I think, I think equities will do 8 to 10 to 12. And then I'll build, you know, I'll put six, six and a half in fixed income. Life is okay. It'll never get there straight line. I'm certain of that. I've done this too long to realize it's not going to be straight line to nirvana. But the, uh, I think you can have a pretty good, pretty good go.
0: We've heard so many times this people talk about traditional portfolios, 60-40 being dead, and it did have a, a kind of a nasty year in 2022, but that resets the opportunity set, right? When things go down, usually yields go up, valuations go down, things look better. That's the way this kind of works. You mentioned the Magnificent Seven and then equity is doing okay. Do you have to move away from market cap weight? So, you know, the market cap weight, obviously having a pretty heavy tilt in that and weighting in uh, those indices and most investors are market cap weighted Do people have to start to tilt away or lean uh, away from the market cap to get those kind of eight, 10, 12.
1: For the first time in my career and or in my personal investment history, like I love tech. Like I think I call it the fast rivers of cash flow. Like you want to be in these companies growing and that because they invest in R&D they, they promote future growth. And, and by the way, we're still watching some of these companies. Like, it's pretty incredible that in some of their business still generating 30% top-line revenue growth at this size. Like, it's unbelievable. But for the first time in, I don't know, 15, 20 years, that I would say, like, there's some valuations that make sense around, you know, these sectors we talked about. So I would say, the first time in my personal investing career and I'm doing uh, some of the funds is I'm actually doing more in equal weighting. Like, I've my view has been Particularly if you're going to own equities for 10 years, 20 years, I've said, own the fast rivers of cash flow, own the tech companies. and But for the first time, I've shifted some into, let's do equal weight, let's do more equal weight, get into more healthcare to find some of these names we talked about. Even, you know, airlines, auto, that boy, up the multiple's pretty good. Even some of the banks recently, I don't know, the multiples are okay. And so yeah, for the first time in a while, going into 24, I think doing more equal weight. Again, I wouldn't sell these. I mean, I like still owning a bunch of these tech companies. I think about it, the amount of CapEx spend in this country that's going to go in it. If AI is going to be what it is, chip production, GPU, expenditure, et cetera, like, like I wouldn't get out. But uh, but anyway, shifting the move in the needle a bit, I think makes a bunch of sense today.
0: We talk about the opportunity set of hanging out in treasuries, which you get a nice yield that we haven't in a long time. But- I don't know of the opportunity set of a dozen other type of bonds that you know cross your desk that you spend time with when you're up at four four thirty in the morning. What time do you get up? Your quiet hour
1: three forty five.
0: Oh my goodness! (laughs) Up at that quiet time, and listeners, is a fun chat on the last one where if you're if you're making trades at that point, Rick might be on the other side. So, tell us a little bit about the world of fixed income because you know one of the challenges I think I think about is if you got this nice fat yield in, in treasuries or T-bills, you know, are you getting paid to take on the risk of corporate or emerging market or all these other flavors? It's like a Baskin-Robbins, flavors of bonds when you can get this sort of return in treasury. So do things look good? Areas that don't look good? Walk us through it.
1: By the way, part of the reason why I get up so early, I always talk about, like I trade during London time because it's the crossover between Asia and U and New York, U.S., and I always call that the unchaperoned period where where uh, London where they tend to data in data. So anyway, but away from that. So it's a good question. I mean, would you like if you're just comfortable clipping five? You know, it's like you know, life is good. Like five is okay. I mean, in our careers. And so the last ten years, the average yield on Treasury bills was 0.83%. Five's pretty good. By the way, if you the U.S. government, it stinks. Because we've got a debt problem. We've got too much debt in this country. The government has too much debt. We're funding it now at five and a half. It's a problem people realize this. I mean, I think policymakers realize this two, three years hence. But as an investor, it's pretty good. As an individual, it's pretty good. But I think people underestimate, like, let's get out the curve a little bit, lock it in. And to your point, do we need to own a lot of high yield? And So one of the things that's unique about bonds today is to get six, six and a half, six and a half now. It's not that hard. To get eight is hard. I gotta go down the credit spectrum. I gotta buy some triple C high yield. I gotta buy some some leveraged loans. I gotta get some EM and we own some EM, we own some high yield. But boy, I like owning it in a place that is respectful of their volatility. And if the economy slows, and I listen, I don't think we're going to recession, but we're gonna slow. You're gonna have some more defaults. EM always get always wakes you up with a with a piece of political news like, wow, I didn't expect that. So I think at the end of the day, like if you're comfortable with six, six and a half, like life is good, and and uh, and so we're not going to go there. I mean, one of the things that is spectacular high yield, seventy two percent of the financing and high yield happened when the funds rate was under one percent. These companies took advantage of it. They said, you know what, we're going to get these rates. Remember, high yield was like at three and a half, four, and so the companies turned their debt out. They don't have a maturity wall. I found that you can't default if you don't have debt maturing. But you know, you own need to own a lot of it. You know, I'd say you know in our portfolios today, we're really comfortable owning investment grade credit. We're really comfortable owning agency mortgages. This you know, you buy AAA CLOs, clip a really nice yield. So, you know, I'd say high yield EM is a B minus in a portfolio. It's not a D, but you don't need to own as much of it.
0: I wonder. I mean, we we touched briefly on stocks and Magnificent Seven. I, I wonder at what point this attractive yield becomes a vacuum sucking sound. I mean, behaviorally, it's hard to come up with things like the Fed model where, you know, yields compete with equities. But theoretically, I feel like most people actually, you know, believe it. And if they believe it, it might be psychologically impactful on their behavior. And I joke for a long time, my Bank of America rewards, they would email me to tell me that the yield went up from 0.05 to 0.07%, you know, and they were very happy about it. I'm like, whoever sent out that email, I was like, you had to be crazy. But now it's actually five point07, right, or whatever it is. How much sort of competition you know in your circles, do you chat with people that that the flows are starting to compete with fixed income? Because for forever, I mean, all the acronyms, ZERP, NERP, all these different things where you know fixed income was zero. So it was a lot easier to do sort of the comparison. But now that it's at five, six, seven, eight, to me, that starts to become a very real competing asset. Is that something you hear or, or is it impacting behavior yet?
1: Yes and no. I mean, so it, sh- I mean, it should be, but today people have said exactly what you said. People have said, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit in cash, clip five, and then I'm going to own equities. And so the technicals in the equity market are maybe the best I've ever seen in my career. So think about the numbers. There's no IPO calendar. $20 billion, I think, has come year to date, maybe $25 billion. There's 800 billion of stock buyback that's happened this year. That's not people's 401k. That's not, I've got, you know, I got income coming in. I put X amount in equities. 800 billion stock buyback, normal allocation that goes into equities. And there's no supply. And by the way, you think about the exact opposite of that. Treasury bills, we're issuing 400 billion a week of treasury bills. So, like, the technos in the equity market are unbelievable. So, I think what happens, people sit in cash then they hold their equities and equities move higher because I think people underappreciate. The technicals are incredible. So what I think is going to happen now in, into 2024 is I think you'll see people take money out of money market funds, put it into bonds to because you can clip and lock in some of this yield. We've seen that last month or so. And then I think they'll hold their equities. So I don't think there's a big reallocation, particularly if you think equities, A, the technicals are great. They can throw off this 10% ROE. I just think what happens now is people say, gosh, I don't want to miss the trade. By the way, it's not crazy. If you get a 100-base-1 rally in in, in rates, we've got a lot of it recently, you can get double-digit returns in stable, like you said, in stable quality assets. And so why not do that? But I don't think there's a reallocation because I just don't think people are long. I mean, look at most strategists. they think the equity market's not going, or they have been not going up that much. People, I look at their competitors, people are underweight equities. So I uh, I don't know. I think the equity market is fine and technically a thing.
0: So let's bounce around a little bit. You seem pretty um positive and content on the traditional spots, which I think is great. Let's get a little weird. You had referenced Argentina earlier. They got a lot going on down there as always a basket case of financial markets. But as you look beyond the shores of traditional assets, so this could be foreign assets, but this could also be real assets. So we haven't even really mentioned Commodities, gold, real estate, Bitcoin, all that fun stuff. Any general thoughts, a field of the traditional kind of core portfolio that most U.S. investors think about?
1: We'll go around the world. So first of all, I think Japan's really interesting. For most of my career, like Japanese equities, why? For the first time, you actually have wage inflation, you know, like it's really happening. And so I think Japan is an interesting place to get equity exposure. India, you know, India's obviously gotten a huge amount of attention, stock market there has done well. I actually don't think most of the valuations in India are interesting at all. I mean, what we're doing is doing more mid cap stuff because you gotta find these companies The big caps, there aren't that many and they trade rich, but India is a place, you know, I think is gonna be interesting going forward. You know, we take some shots in, in parts of China that have really come under pressure. We don't own that much, but there are some interesting individual name stories that I think we're taking advantage of. EM, I think in, in local, some of the local rates, I mean, EMs cutting interest rates. A lot of places are so. Some of Max Brazil, I think is, I think are places to take a shot at. And listen, how this gets into the world of controversy, but I think the uh, you know crypto has proven. You know, particularly some of the you know the Bitcoin, et cetera, has proven to be there's some durability to it. There are more people in the space, and so. It's something that I think more and more people have become receptive to. So,
0: Always interesting things that don't die, that are hard to kill. That seems to me to be uh, enduring. Although you can buy gold bars, I learned this past week, you can buy gold bars not only on Costco, but on Walmart's website as well, which Costco has announced they sold like 100 million of gold bars, which I found astonishing. But India and China are probably like, oh, please, that's a drop in the bucket. (laughs) Japan is a particularly interesting one because the amount of people that I've heard similar sentiments, you know, this is an equity market that's essentially had no real returns for 30 plus years. But the amount of underallocation statistics, we posted one on Twitter the other day. We'll add to the show note links about how far it was in our Idea Farm newsletter. It was 75 facts from 2023 that were interesting. And one of them was about how underallocated investors were to japan but this is usually true of foreign and general particularly emerging markets but japan is um not some tiny economy you know it's a top three type of economy and, and market cap that the governance seemingly is is changing we've seen a lot of buybacks there which is not something that historically they've done a ton of so that's going to be a fun one to watch um i'll be over there in about a month so i'll uh give some boots on the
1: crown agree mm-hmm. I mean, that's pretty incredible. It's one of the most attractive. The one thing I will say, it's hard finding a lot of great companies that aren't fully priced there. So you got to do a lot of digging. The banks are interesting. These prices, automation and the automation companies are interesting, but you definitely have to do your work other than, you know, quite frankly, we buy a lot of the index and just topics. We like topics more than Nikkei. So I don't know, but we think it'll probably do okay from here. Some of the auto are interesting as well. Yeah, we're excited.
0: As excited as a quant can be. I'm excited to cheer for the, the names that they, uh, they spit out. The Cambria Global Real Estate ETF, ticker BLDG, seeks income and capital appreciation by investing primarily in the securities of domestic and foreign companies principally engaged in the real estate sector and real estate related industries that exhibit favorable multi-factor metrics such as value, quality, and momentum. Learn how BLDG can help your portfolio. Carefully consider the fund's investment objectives, risk factors, charges, and expense before investing. This and other information can be found by visiting our website at cambryfunds.com Read the perspective carefully before investing or sending money. Investing involves risks, including potential loss of capital. Investing in foreign companies involves different risks than domestic-based companies as operating environments vary from jurisdiction to jurisdiction. Investing in real estate poses different risks than investing in stocks and bonds. The Canberra ETFs are distributed by Alster Distributors, Inc., member FINRA. You know, so we've talked about a lot that you seem pretty... I'm happy with anything where you're like, oh, man, this doesn't look good. I don't like this. Stay away. Put this coal in your stocking, this asset, this strategy. Is there anything in particular that you're a little nervous about on assets and
1: various investments? So, I mean, the one thing that that keeps me up at night is I think the U.S. debt issue is, is is a problem.
0: How does that ever come to a head, though? Like everyone, I feel like worried about this forever. Is this something that just like doesn't really matter to it matters?
1: I think that's exactly right. I think what happens is so in two thousand twenty-four, are people going to lose sleep over it? No, but what happens is there is a cumulative effect because if we don't deal with it, then what happens is, and I always say policymakers don't, you know, generally don't deal with things until the shark is right next to the boat. And this is going to get right next to the boat. It's just not going to, in January, it's not going to get next to the boat. What happens is this cumulative effect, because the Treasury issues so much of their debt at the front end of the yield curve, so much in bills, massive amounts in bills. We used to issue them at zero to one, now we're issuing them at five and a half. So what happens is our debt burden and our debt service, which is even more important, just keeps growing and growing and growing. And then two years, a year, two years hence, the total debt, the debt service, is going to eclipse the spend on military, and all the discretionary spend in this country is going to get used up by debt service, military, and then obviously entitlement, but mandatory spend. It's a problem, and like and, you know, is somebody going to deal? You know, we're going to deal with it in two thousand twenty-four. Probably not, but uh, boy, I, you know, they're going to go through. If you said to me in two thousand twenty-four, they're going to be, you know, you've seen some of this recently, even in a good market, failed auctions for Treasuries because we're issuing at a pop, like in a given day. We're showing. What did we have last Monday? Two hundred fifty billion in a day. We're doing six hundred and fifty billion a week. someday. like we'll have a Monday. We'll have a two-year auction, a five-year auction, two, a thirteen-week Treasury bill, a twenty-six-week Treasury bill. And like, wow. Like if, in between eleven thirty and one in, and one in the afternoon, eleven Eastern time, in an hour and a half, we're going to price two hundred sixty billion. Like we're going to have during two thousand twenty-four. Like people aren't going to show up one day for the seven-year note. Be like, oh my god. So it's something. It keeps me up, and guess it's too big, and I don't think people are going to deal with it. But, uh, but there'll be, mark my words? There'll be bouts of volatility with it. You know, the other thing, obviously, geopolitics—you got to really think through like where your investments are, given the geopolitics are unpredictable. And then, you know, I, I, I say, then you got to keep an eye on China in terms of growth and, and influence and how that develops over the year. But we're, we're definitely not. I feel like you were saying. I feel okay about things, but I, I bet. It won't December 31st next year, we won't be sitting like, wow, that was easy.
0: Maybe the AI overlords will save us or just turn us into pets by then anyway, (laughs) so it's not going to matter. I want to hear about your ETFs, man. This is exciting. You've launched two now. The first was, I believe, the Flexible Income ETF, BINC, and then the Total Return ETF, BRTR.
1: Give us a little overview. So, I mean, the first one is this one bank that we're running as a high-income ETF. So we're trying to keep it at about 7% yield. You know, recently we've dipped down a six and a half to your comments earlier. Like, you know, is it worth stretching to get seven? I don't think so. So we're going to let it run at about six and a half. The idea being diversify it, securitized assets, parts of, uh, you know, investment grade, European investment grade, just be tactical. Anyway, the reason why it's grown fast quite frankly a lot faster than I thought we've got we've gotten a huge amount of of nice notes of on it media around it, and I think it's a headline today. It's just being tactical Craig, six and a half with low volatility and, and I think we have like we literally are hundred percent of the yield of the high of the double b high yield market and we're half the volatility. so it's gotten a lot of attention. I think it's going to grow quite a bit uh, you know I will I open um, I think in the beginning of the year people more and more are looking to get that yield with a, and like I said, there's 68,000 securities in fixed income. It's a hard market if you're not in it day and minute to minute. And so we use a lot of research.
0: Well, I think that not to interrupt you, but that's such an important point. And we talk to investors a lot about this. We say, look, you know, global stock market, the U S stock market, you're talking about thousands of securities and global, you know, maybe 10,000 really investable in the private markets on like, say, Private equity type of investments. There's a lot of arguments that I think are bunk and bogus in the private equity world. The no volatility angle that Cliff talks a lot about, and a bunch of others. But um, but breadth, meaning the number of choices, to me is the one they should be talking a lot about. Where there's orders of magnitude more choices, and the same thing is true in your world where fixed income. I mean, my God, it tens of thousands of potential choices out there of every flavor. Most of them, it's not as easy as just buying, you know, Goog or IBM on your E-Trade account either. So it's a lot more complex area. So you think about,
1: like if people say commercial real estate, like, oh my God, I don't think it's commercial. Actually, you think about places like hosp- like hotels and the dynamic around hotel financing. And, and, and by the way, because of the stress in some places in the banking system, you get to finance some of these businesses with great collateral, great structure, great covenants, cash flow sweeps, et cetera, but it's pretty complex unless you're in it doing it. You know, and are you financing at the top of the stack, bottom of the stack, it's really complex. So I don't know why But the beauty of it is you can finance at attractive levels, and so it's a big part of fixed income. And we do more in our mutual funds, but some in some in the ETFs where we can. But like you say, it's a really diverse, you know, set of things you do. So that, never anyway, that's this big one that. We're super excited about. But we just launched BlackRock Total Return, which is pretty similar to what we run in mutual fund form and return a total return fund, similar to a core plus strategy or a core plus strategy where people say, gosh, I own equities and I want to have that 40. This gets me the 40 and has outperformed the the ag uh, almost, I think, every year, or almost every year for how many straight years, but gets you some of the additional return because we can do things, eliminate bad parts of the index. One of the other secrets in fixed income. The more company the more you lever the more you put on debt the more you are in the in the index like that's not where you want to go and there's some parts of the index that trade too rich like agency debt or supranational debt trades it like nothing like why you know it, you know you can buy treasuries at the same level virtually so we cut that, that stuff out we cut out parts of the yield curve that don't make a lot of sense today like we're about the long end like why own it we i doing more in five sevens tens so anyway we're excited about that, that people will use it and are starting to use it for I can marry that to my equity portfolio, create my forty, do in a way that's efficient, use tax, you know, because where people use ETS for tax strategies, et cetera.
0: How should investors so like let's say there's some advisors listening to this call and they say, Okay, I'm gonna check these tickers out. How do they think in terms of conversations? Because we've had some over the years where with well, the way we thought investors may use these funds, maybe it didn't turn out to be the actual way they use them. But is there a way you kind of talk to investors and say, hey, look, this is how we think about positioning these funds in your portfolio, the core satellite, placements for ag, blah, blah, blah. Where should investors that are doing like a strategic allocation slot these in?
1: So, you know, like everything, it depends on like how much do I own in equity, how much do I own in real estate, what do I own in private equity, et cetera. So the way I would think about it, though, in these two funds like the income fund is one that's like, gosh, I want to generate, I want to hold a lot of income. And then, you know, we don't run as much duration, as much interest rate sensitivity. So we'll run a two and a half year, two and a half, two and three quarter year duration. So it's not going to move as, around as much as interest rates, but it's a lot of income and it should do its job. And if rates rally, you know, it'll it'll do its job and throw off a lot of income. The total return one is much more of an ag. If I own a lot of equities, I own a lot of beta. It's got a longer duration to it, by three or four years, longer longer duration to it. It'll move. And if interest rates go up, it's not going to perform as well. But if, it, if interest rates drop, total return will give you a really good, particularly if we're in that normalized world where economy really slows. You want that interest rate sensitivity. You want that attached to your equity portfolio. And So that's how people say, gosh, I'll own, I want to own some total return. Similar to the way people owned it for 30 years when rates came down. So now because there's more, you've got a Fed that's more two way and we'll look at gosh, they'll cut rates if the economy slows, but all they'll leave it here. it's a pretty good hedge now. You know, whereas for the last three years, you know, the way you open the show, it's like it wasn't because it was inflation moved up, you got hurt on rates and you got hurt on equities. But now it's much more two way. So I anyway, know so but they're different. And uh, you know, I would depending on, you know, how much equities do you have, how much beta do you have, how much real estate, et cetera. I would implement them differently based on that. Good, just buying both.
0: So do you guys still do, I don't know if in these strategies, but I know in some of your others you do some hedging, and I don't know if it's through shorting futures or how you guys swaps or how you guys do it. Are you are you doing that in these funds too, or is it purely long only sort of?
1: Not as much. I mean, so these funds, the idea being they're puzzle pieces for this income, the one bank that we talked about, you're going to buy that income and it'll have some volatility. It has a lot less volatility than anything else than, than the ag, than high yield, etc. What we do is we tactically move around. We'll take some beta down. We'll get more in a high quality, but it's going to do what it's going to do. Same thing with total return. We'll you know, move around tactically. In our mutual funds, I do a lot of hedging. I run an unconstrained fund called SIO, Strategic Income Opportunities. I do a lot of hedging. I use equity options. I use the dollar. I use a lot of hedging to try and keep, Pretty proud of it of we've done you know more than double the return of the ag at half the ball for a long, long time. But I'm using a lot of hedging tools. The idea on the ETF is it's gonna do what it's gonna do when you can put it in a model and assume that it's gonna have this, but it will have more volatility, more sincere to what we're trying to what somebody presumably was trying to achieve for that tool. Cool.
0: Well, listeners, check those out. Uh, By the time we talk to him next year, he'll probably have like four more funds. So we'll keep an eye out and uh, we'll update on the the ETF landscape. Let's bounce around with some other ideas. You know, anything on this past year really surprised you? I think either in the macro economy or in the investing world where you kind of look back and shake your head a little bit and say, wow, that was weird or that wasn't what I expected.
1: So, uh, gosh, I'm going to think through and obviously you always think about the things that are most recent. Like the shift in the Fed, like was unbelievable. Like in two weeks, three weeks, and by the way, the data didn't change that much. The uh, but like all of a sudden, the Fed going from we got more to do on inflation, we got more like all right, now we're now we're going to start cutting. Right, I, I've been pretty blown away by that. How fast? Because usually, I was on the Fed's Investor Advisory Committee for eight years. I mean, you know, they're very pragmatic about. Communicating, setting people up for a transition, like that was fast. Anyway, my guess is the markets think it's faster than it really is. But, uh, but anyway, that was, that was surprising. The long end of the yield curve when the, the economy slowed, I mean, the incredible bid at 4% for long bonds. I think a lot of it's pension and life insurance that are less sensitive because they're matching a liability, but wow, like, <laughs> like I don't know why people want to own that asset. That's been surprising. The equity market, I mean, uh, you know, I think the technos in the equity market are incredible. The technology performance has been amazing. And then obviously the inception, you know, the growth. I think a lot of it, people say it's AI, definitely. But boy, I, I think people underestimate these businesses. They're off a lot of cash and they reinvest in R&D. But the price performance after last year, I mean, it pretty it blows you away.
0: rivers of cash flow i tell you these tech firms you know what's interesting to me has been i think most american investors we talk a lot about at this point the cycle are not as interested in foreign investments but we have started to see a lot of interesting tech companies tech stocks in the emerging market space where it's combining a bit of the fundamentals but also the performance and momentum which is really what hasn't been there for a long time china has i think really struggled
1: this year but other countries are doing quite a bit better. Hey, Ma'am, can I throw one other thing that I think is interesting?
0: Throw out more than one, throw out a dozen.
1: The other thing that's been extraordinary, and, and uh, I think we caught this okay, but is the this dynamic around healthcare change and you know, like this GLP 1, the Eli Lillys, Novo Nordisk. I think the next couple of years, I mean, this was an extraordinary, and the impact it had on companies you wouldn't even think that it impacted from kidney to heart failure, et cetera pretty remarkable. And I think for the next couple of years, we're going to see something around the ability to deconstruct DNA. You're seeing some, you know, hopefully encouraging things on cancer, and cancer development, brain health. I got the next couple of years could be a pretty amazing point in time. And you spend a lot of time looking at companies trying to figure out where do you get into some of these spaces. But I think that's going to be, you see know, when you throw out things that surprised you is we think that technology is real and we think it's but The impact it had, like all of a sudden, like McDonald's stock came under pressure because people were worried about the GLP one. Like, wow, did you think, you know, people would eat less Big Macs? I guess that's a pretty amazing thing. And I think the next couple of years, like wood, we're gonna see some pretty wild discoveries, I think.
0: Yeah, you know, I cut my teeth coming out of university. My first job was a biotech analyst, and this was all the excitement listeners who You know, as big as the internet bubble was, there was equally as impactful sort of biotech bubble because the original sequencing of the human genome, which how many over billions it cost at that point, and today I think it's sub a thousand bucks now. I just sent off my swab can't say swab without saying Schwab, my swab of my DNA to a company to get sequenced. And I think it was like 500 bucks for the whole kit and caboodle. I haven't got it back yet. So who knows where it's going, but biotech, it feels like it in a Gattaca sense has really turned the corner. You're starting to see a lot of these therapies. One of my biggest whiffs, you know, I'm a quant guy. So every stock pitch I hear, one of the reasons I'm a quant is they all sound good to me. I used to go to like the Value Investing Congress. I listen to Buffett or these all these hedge fund managers, and every pitch, uh, or every even time I read Barrons, I'll go read, you know, listen to you guys talk about best investments next year, and they all sound good to me. But I had, I had a buddy, Steve Sugarood, shout out to Steve, who uh, it was like a year and a half ago, he was talking about these drug companies, and he's talking about Lilly and Novo, and he said, these, you want to be buying these stocks? And he said, I lost 50 pounds on this already. And I just kind of nodded and I said, my uh, discretionary stock picking days are long behind me. Uh, but in the last year, I wish I would listened to him because uh, the impact they're going to have, it could theoretically, even though everyone knows about it now, be understated if it really has the impacts in the world of, say, alcoholism, in other areas, you know, I'm sure there'll be some side effects too. Hopefully not, fingers crossed, but it's exciting. Now, the crazy part is if you look at the biotech stock charts, a lot of these biotech ETFs, I mean, you got a little run in the last month, but they straight up have had zero returns since 2015, close to some of them, depends on the index you use. But you're going on a better part of almost a decade. They really peaked in 21.
1: I'm going to tell you, man, we're in the business every day of working on you know, big research teams. It, it is hard picking them.
0: It's going to be exciting, fun times. And we're all going to live to 100 or start planning for it. All right. So let's say after this, you're going to a holiday party. You're sitting around drinking some eggnog or having a coffee with your team tomorrow, casual lunch. And you make a statement and these are your peers, so 75% of them shake their head. They look at you, and they're like, Rick doesn't know what he's talking about. What is a belief? It could could be a framework. It could be a very specific, I think this is going to happen, blah, blah, blah. I think this is something else. What is a belief you hold that, say, 75% of your peers at this holiday party, at this lunch, would shake their head and say,
1: I disagree with Rick. I think he's crazy. So the one that I that I keep espousing, and I think the, the uh, someone have been on your show, like I don't think I don't think the economy going. You know, I think this idea of investing in equities, like their cycles, like this is the classic. I don't think there's a classic anymore. People think I'm nuts about this. You have a set an economy seventy percent services, seventy percent consumption oriented, and the variability on spend on healthcare and education and uh, it doesn't really change that much. You know, there's been I think it's thirteen quarters in a hundred years. That people that we've had negative growth in services and during recessions, the average growth is 2% growth. I just don't buy the whole. Yes, there's some variability economy slowing. I don't agree with that. People say you have their respect for history. I think you have to have a healthy disrespect for history. You don't follow it because others do and it impacts the technicals of the market. But like life is different. Like you know, Regimes shift, things change. And I think people always look for the, the analog that like, this is what happened historically. And I, I think most of that. Like, I think you have to know it because others follow it. But I don't know. I, I think, you know, you go to a party and people say, well, you know, think about this is just like the. And I'm like, actually, I don't think that way. I don't know. I think you always have to identify the regime and think about where we're operating. I'll throw in another thing. I think surveys, like this, this industry loves surveys. Like, what are people feeling? How they feel? People all feel the same way at the same time. Like, if the market's going down, everybody's like negative on the economy, they're negative on everything. And then, by the way, you know, I think what, what is the story? Like the um, you know surveys or the Euchre predict like eight out of the last three recessions. Like they stink, and you know it's like polling. It's like election polling. It's like they stink. I'm a big believer. Like study the data. Like I want, I want to hear like companies. I want to know like we're looking at some of the retailers recently. Who's buying electronics? Who's buying you know they're buying apparel. They're buying electronics. Are they are they not doing as much in goods? Are they do more in services. Like I think this industry spends way too much time like surveying other people and everybody gives the same answer. <laughs> like, I don't, I don't, by the way, there's a bunch of things that I think blow me away about like the consistency of like the, the, it's accepted that some of these things, and I just think things are different. I think you got to evaluate. Man, I'll throw one other thing you might hear. Like I believe in quant, I believe in fundamental, and I actually think it's the marriage of the two that really is successful. Like, and I think you just got to do, like on the fundamental, you got to do all your work and uh, to understand like why is, you know, like we just talked about, like why is healthcare different than it was five years ago and why, why is, and then then use your quant to understand who's long, who's short, because by the way, it won't perform if, every, if everybody's already long. And so I do a bunch of like trying to figure that out, marry the fundamental and the quant, because I just don't think either of them individually is durable from, uh, in terms of consistent performance. Anyway, one mm-hmm. on that's opinion.
0: You hit a couple of things that I think are really interesting. I mean, you know, using history as a guide, but realizing it's always different. I think that's pretty instructive and instrumental, really, because so many times I feel like investors are prepared because they haven't studied history. But if you hold it as a Bible where it's like, you know, guaranteed to look like the past, it becomes problematic when things get even weirder, <laughs> which they're bound to do. I mean COVID was pretty weird, but we're always hitting things that have never happened before. and, and, and that's the so hard and makes this fun and challenging is trying to decide when the, these times are actually real or it is something that reverts. sentiments tough though. you know We look at a lot of the sentiment surveys and I think they're interesting from sort of a magazine cover standpoint. but as far as placing you know investing decisions on them, it's, it's usually more obvious in retrospect. Than it is, you know, kind of concurrent. But others feel differently. But I find it hard. I like talking about it, but I find it, I find it hard. No, I totally
1: agree. I think you got to bring a lot of tools to the fight
0: every day. As you look out into 24, and this is a bit of an open-ended question, so you can take this a couple different ways. You know, if you think about, you can say what's on your brain that you're excited or worried about. But the other one is what, as you look back, what sort of content book idea influenced you most this year and if you got one good we can talk about it if you don't i have one also that i'm going to bring up either before or after but is there anything you're thinking about anything you're streaming as the year comes down any good presence that suggests giving out i'm a big gadget
1: geek i am maniacal about like i love all the new cool stuff that's in, that it's out by the way part of why like tech is less like they're not the apply the hardware companies there's not that many interesting new technologies, you know, you go back in time and there were, whether it was the, the iPhone or the AirPod or whatever, whatever it was, not that many that I think are that exciting now. You know, I will say that, what did I, that there was a, what was it? There was a Wharton study was with OpenAI that, um, there was this collaboration that talked about, um, the impact of large language models. And I, I, God, when was it six months ago, nine months ago, and I remember reading it and thinking. And the story was 80 percent of, of job function would be affected and it was i forget the number but something like it would eliminate 20 to 35 40 of the jobs that thing really they help me around whether it's investing in some of the chip companies who are the winners in in ai and by the way i don't think it's clear who those winners and i think the markets overreact on some versus others but I don't know. I mean, it's hard to, in 2000, when you rewrite 2023, it's hard to say. And there were some studies I read that really blew me away about that this could be, this could be the real, the real deal.
0: The real deal, Holyfield. You know, it's funny. I talked to a lot of friends that have implemented AI extensively into their personal or business life. I've toyed with it a lot. I played around with it. We've recorded my voice and trained podcasts where they could read it. But from more of a just curiosity standpoint, So listeners, if you have any uh, major use cases or ideas you're using, shoot me an email. I'm curious to hear. Um, I have some friends that have implemented extensively and absolutely go nuts, swear by it. So 2024, it's going to be on my to-do list. Are you implementing it on a daily basis yet or found any great use cases?
1: So I think the place where we are using it the most is two places. One it's helping us absorb a lot of data we use tons of systems help us absorb signals and globally to look at indicators around the economy look at you know pull from corporate results around what home builders are saying about the housing market, markets that's been really really instructive for us and and that that i think will keep growing and i would say we're, we're scratching the surface of what can be done there the second is we do a ton with portfolio construction and ability to run mass simulations and just run it over and over again and use technology broadly, artificial and otherwise, that's been really, really try and manage, stress test, and manage what you're doing. Those are the big ones. I, I by the way, today somebody took one of the things I wrote and they and they and I guess you could do it in somebody else, in other people's style, like rewrite this.
0: Take Rick's annual letter and put it in the style of Warren Buffett or Peter Lynch. That's actually a good idea. Is like to take something. And then get like five other famous investors and write it in their style. Maybe we'll try for Meb's in letter. That's a great idea.
1: Never knew you could do that. That was that was but anyway, I think we're learning a ton more. What I'm you know, for my business, for our business. And I think assimilating, I like talked about I don't really love surveys, I use them, but I really love like if we can get these companies come out with you know these retailers, there's so much information in terms of what's really impacting consumption and if we can absorb that quickly. And then and not just quickly, but comprehensively so that we're not pivoting off of noise. Like somebody said something that was, if we can use it comprehensively, that's pretty powerful.
0: Yeah, it's going to be fun to see what goes down. Uh, Certainly in the startup investing world, it's like, it's certainly over a third, but it's probably half of the startups I see are AI flavored. And of course, all of them are close to pre-revenue. Also, some of them are, are really starting to get some traction. Big differentiator versus I think a lot of the Traditional crypto space was—you're seeing infinite use cases and actual revenue-generating companies and products pretty quickly, which is going to be fun to watch.
1: It's like you have to take a step back in time. Like, do you know we lived for like the pretty fixed income? We lived in this negative. Think about negative yields—how crazy that is. And I I just think, you know, what am I excited about? 2024? It's like getting yield for years. Like, I mean, rates were at zero. We had to buy high yield at three and a half, and you knew it was stupid. You knew that it was—it was not a stupid. You can outperform for a period of time, but you knew ultimately that asset was not a fruitful asset, and you just had to be tactical about getting out when you wanted to when you wanted to get out. Like this is a pretty cool. Like I'm pretty energized going to 2024. Like getting this sort of yield and trying to lock it in. Like that, you know, it's a fixed income person that.
0: No, I hear you. That was a weird time. Looking back on it, I mean, I, I've, we've seen a lot of crazy stuff in the past couple of decades. The negative yielding sovereigns and trying to like, how to think about doing the math on something like a negative uh, yielding mortgage. It just
1: about lending money to companies. And like, by the way, we're going to lend you money and we're going to pay you for the right to do it. How is that possible? Like, it's insane. Looking at it, like these European companies, they oh, I all mean, the us companies as well. They took the money. And now these companies have like, they have no debt needs. a lot of them, the big investor, great companies. So that's part of why it's weird. You're getting the yield for them and they don't, and the risk is down because they they took advantage of it. But lending money is crazy. Paying them, it's crazy.
0: Part of what you were saying earlier on the U.S. consumer being, you know, particularly strong, I think not a trivial amount has to do with their wealth in real estate, but also the mortgages, the vast majority being at, locked in at low levels, you know, they're not floating and so the rates going up doesn't affect them maybe the way that they would have in the past.
1: No, I, people underestimate it, the, the leverage in the in the system, the lower income, the bottom 10% is hurting a bit because you didn't have the facility or ability to do that, but you know, generally within housing, a, a ton of that was done and so the overall leverage is a pretty good position.
0: Rick, it's been awesome. Where do people find out about the ETFs? What you're up to? What you're writing about? Where's the best place to go? I mean, it's a BlackRock website,
1: and we have it on, uh, you know, on you know, BlackRock.com, and we have a, uh, a ton of information on it. And then, our obviously, all our the new ETFs—it's just, you know, the ticker symbol BINC and, and BRTR—and uh, yeah, knowing what we have on our website is great. And I appreciate people. I uh, appreciate you mentioning people taking a look at them.
0: Yeah. Rick, thanks so much for joining us again. We'll have to do it again next year. That'd be great. Thanks for having me. Podcast listeners will post show notes to today's conversation at mebfaber.com forward slash podcast. If you love the show, if you hate it, shoot us feedback at the mebfabershow.com. We love to read the reviews. Please review us on iTunes and subscribe the show anywhere good podcasts are found. Thanks for listening, friends, and good investing.